Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Natalie Jacobson, the author of Every Life a Story, Natalie Jacobson Reporting. This is her first book. She was the longtime anchor and reporter at one of America's greatest TV stations, WCVB in Boston. Natalie, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity that promotes children's literacy. Natalie Jacobson has done what I've told myself I'm going to do once <laughs> I finish being a TV reporter. She wrote down all of her craziest stories, right? Who wouldn't want to do that? Uh, for 35 years, she approached her job at WCVB with the mantra, an educated society is the best defense against tyranny. There's a school of thought that says when you cover public affairs, it should be issues, issues, issues. What will our candidates do with our taxes, our military, our welfare programs, et cetera? But Natalie, you open the book with a story about a technique that you refined that doesn't ignore the issues at all, but makes an effort to tell stories about public officials in a bit of a different way. Who are they is the question you wanted to ask. So Natalie, first of all, how does a reporter get good at finding out who someone is? with a lot of hard work, as you can well appreciate. Um, back in 1990, I went to my employers and said, you know, I have this sense, I could be wrong, but I have this sense that most people vote for someone because they like him or her or not. And certainly there are people who will vote an issue no matter what, or their party no matter what. But my sense is after working as a reporter for many years, that that's the minority. So if I'm right, then do we as journalists, as a television station in greater Boston, New England, have a responsibility then to go beyond the issues with candidates and give people a sense of who these people are? What is their character? What drives them? What matters to them? What keeps them up at night? So to, a, to, to prepare for an interview, well, I should say my employers agreed, and we did the first <laughs> of them in the 90s. So, and we, we thought, well, okay, where's the best place to interview someone about your character, your, you know, your, your home life in a sense, your, who you are. And we decided at home with their family. So we call these um, reports at home. And it was interesting, you know, the results that came from that very first one. And I think, I think we were right to do that. Um, so for preparation to answer your question, I tried to read as much as I could about what these people had written, not about running for office or about a particular issue. I called their friends and people I thought who might not like them so much. Uh, I tried to get a sense of who they are. And that's, that, that took a long time. That took weeks, if not months. We're, we're, before we talk about that specific interview, um, do uh, did, the, did the people you wanted to interview, were they receptive to that? Were they um, prepared for that kind of interview or, you know, were they ever like, wait a minute, we're, you're supposed to meet me on a street corner when I'm coming out of a building, not coming to my house and interviewing everybody who I know, who I know and interviewing me to try to, you know, figure out what I have before bed at night. Uh, well, oddly enough, in the case of the first two candidates, John Silver, who was then president, both running for governor, 
um, uh, president of Boston University and John Wells, who was a U.S. attorney. I, they both readily agreed. Hmm. And I told them, and understand, I mean, I do understand that time is the most precious commodity for a candidate. So I said to them, this is not a 10 minute interview. I may be with you for several hours. Oh man. I don't know if you could convince anyone to do that now. <laughs> I don't know. I held my breath um, uh, and they, they, they didn't blink. They said, absolutely. I hope that had something to do with the fact that they trusted me. <laughs> you were covering, as you said, the gubernatorial race between Bill Weld and John Silber. Um, I actually interviewed Bill Weld probably in 2006 when he was trying to run for governor of New York. Um, uh, never heard of John Silber. So tell me, who was John Silber and why was he the perfect person to use your at-home theme with? Oh, he wasn't the perfect person. He just happened to be running for governor. He just happened to be first. <laughs> when we decided to do these things. And if you were a Boston person, he mattered because he came from Texas. I think the University of Texas. Do I have that right? I'd have to check that again. Where he actually lost his job. Um, he, and I'm not quite sure why he was fired, except, you know, in academia, they, he ran into trouble. And so he came to Boston as president of Boston University. And Boston University sits, if you will, in the shadows of Harvard and Boston College, um, the preeminent colleges here. And he was determined to make it a first-rate university. And he did. Uh, and when he, so he did that over a period of years. Uh, he was extremely controversial. He was a take no prisoners kind of a guy. So he made news every day of his, pretty much of his life. He was a, a brilliant man, also an angry, impatient man. And so he was done. He thought he'd done his job at Boston University. Uh, no one liked him too much. Um, but it, he, as I said in my book, he didn't give a whit about that. <laughs> um, any rate, he, he decided Massachusetts needed help, and he was the guy to do it. And Bill Well decided he was the guy to do it. They couldn't have been more different. And you asked a question of John Silber that basically sent him off the edge. And you're a little bashful about this, but it may have had an impact on the race itself. I guess it did. Um, and people speculate about why it did. Um, was it because he showed his anger and people are frightened of angry men? Um, I, I personally think that was the prominent, predominant reason. Other people thought it was because he attacked me. Um, so, and I don't know. But the question was, explain the, the question. Oh, the, the question was pretty simple. If I was going after the character of, of these people, I asked them such things as, what do you teach your children? Um, what kind of people do you hire in the job that you're in? What are things that you just would never tolerate? And what are qualities in people with whom you associate or employ uh, that that you that are paramount to to you that are just critical. You wouldn't hire them without it. And so, in the case of Silver, <clears throat> there were the local paper, the Boston Herald, came up with this phrase, "Silver shockers," because he would say such things as, "When you're ripe, it's time to go." Meaning, why are we <laughs> spending so much money on people over sixty? And, or why would I want to give a speech to a bunch of drug addicts in Roxbury, you know, about, you know, whatever. And so he, he, he really rode what was an angry period of time. This was post Dukakis who had been governor and then lost his race for the presidency. And 
the Dukakis miracle was tanking, the, the state was in trouble economically. So people loved these silver shockers, but then I think they got tired of them. Uh, and, and the question was, how do you describe yourself, Dr. Silver? People, everyone's got an opinion about you. So you cannot ask someone an open-ended question like that. You know, how do you describe yourself? I think that's unfair and too difficult. And so I said, so in this way, describe your strengths and your weaknesses. So he ticked off his strengths and they are considerable. Uh, and, and then he stopped and I said, well, and your weaknesses? And he exploded. So that, that didn't do him any favors. I will say for anybody listening to this, go and you go on to YouTube and find a clip of it. It is worth seeing. Um, let's do a little at home with Natalie. Uh, it makes reporters uncomfortable, by the way. It would make me uncomfortable, but you've agreed to this. So uh, your family, Natalie, is from Serbia. Um, you didn't learn English uh, until you were in school. Um, was journalism a natural fit from someone with family from Serbia, your second generation? Was that a natural fit for you? Or did becoming a journalist require you to break the mold? Uh, neither. Um, I, it just happened. It was another happenstance situation for me. I had no idea. You got to remember, I graduated, you know, in the 60s when women basically could be teachers, secretaries and nurses. And not that there's anything wrong with those professions. We need them desperately. But they just didn't appeal to me. I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I got married out of college, University of New Hampshire, to Bill Jacobson. We went to Bangkok, Thailand during the late 60s. Um, during Vietnam, when we came back and I had a great job there just because, you know, I was educated and I guess they thought I was smart and I could handle the load, but it was a big job. It was a contract, it was a contract that we had with, um, supplying personnel to Vietnam. But when I came back to the United States, what I discovered was that women need not apply. I couldn't get a job in management. I couldn't get a job, um, in broadcast journalism. Um, I looked into advertising because I'm a creative person. I thought that could be fun. Uh, I looked into everything. And I looked at, I even thought about medicine, going back to school maybe. Uh, so one, I eventually it's, uh, I talk about it in the book so people can read about it. But eventually I decided um, that I would I'd take a look at journalism. And then I thought, okay, so what? Print, radio, TV, magazines, and I chose TV because it had several ways to tell a story with pictures, with sound, with words, with graphics, with et cetera, and music. And that appealed to me. It seemed you could tell a better story that way. So I went looking for a job. Well, none of the three stations in Boston, ABC, CBS, NBC affiliates would even give me an interview. They just said, we just, one finally admitted, we don't hire girls. And the reason was, and I understood it because my father was of that, mindset because of his generation and his ethnicity. And that was that women back up to that point were the keepers of the home and the bearers of the children. And yes, there are notable exceptions. And of course, World War II produced a different scene in America, but then women went back home. So we were the first, my generation of women was the first generation en masse to really chart a new course of wanting to be working women, mothers, and career people. And it was um, that I spent a lot of time talking about that in the book and young women today, people, girls in their 20s and even 30s, just can't even believe it uh, because the opportunities today are many.
men in their 30s, I have to say, hearing these stories can't believe it. It's shocking to hear the world closed off to half the population like that. Um, I want to go a little further back. Um, Chicago in the 1940s and 50s, where you were born, um, you describe things not necessarily being at your fingertips um, in the upbringing that uh, and in the area that you were in. And um, just describe a little bit about what it was like to be the daughter of um, you know, an immigrant family. It was wonderful. I didn't know anybody who wasn't. <laughs> um, you know, whether you were Polish, Italian, Irish, Serbian, Russian, what, German, whatever. Um, it was a very accepted melting pot of America at the time. And most people didn't have very much money that I knew uh, where we lived. I, you know, I guess I mentioned in the book that I guess we were poor, but I didn't know we were poor because we didn't know anybody who had any more than we did. And as a young child, we didn't have a TV. So you didn't see, you didn't see people who had something, boats, planes, nice houses. So all you saw was your little neighborhood. Uh, it was a wonderful upbringing in this because it wasn't about material things. It was about family. It was about faith. Uh, we're of the Christian Eastern Orthodox faith. That's People don't realize that's one church, but it's divided up by countries. You know, there's a Serbian, the Russian, the Greek, et cetera, Orthodox churches. Um, and it, it just, you know, when we went to school, we, my mother made the only skirt I owned. Um, we, we, we play, we, what did we play with? A, a pink ball, seven up against a brick wall. Um, we didn't have bicycles. We didn't have the money for that. We walked everywhere. Uh, we ate, we ate well, you know, not expensive foods. Uh, we didn't ever go to a restaurant. Um, I don't know if there even were any around. I, I'm sure mm. there were. <laughs> uh -huh. We didn't go to them. Um, so, and, and then the big, the fun, the joys were being with family, taking, you know, a week's vacation, you go visit a cousin in Indianapolis, or, or we used to trudge up nine hours to Northern Michigan to this little lake, Glen Lake. I still treasure it. Uh, it was a little cabin without running water or anything, but it was, it was a palace, you know, it was just, it was wonderful. I had a great childhood and I have three siblings, wonderful mother and father. Um, so, and my dad, um, well, you might, you will, perhaps you're going to even ask about it, but my, when I was a little girl, he ran a bowling alley. And before that, before I was born, I guess he drove a taxi cab which, you know, my uncle, you know, ran the streetcars, you know, ran them, meaning he gave out the tickets once you boarded. <laughs> I was going to ask, um, was it easy to get around Chicago? I, I knew New York. I, I, yeah, I, I know New York. And and so my grandmother and, and other people who um, I'm related to would say all the time, you know, we were able to get on the subway. And even though they didn't have much either, they could go down and, you know, be mingle among the you know biggest buildings in the world and see all the opportunity out there did you get that sense also growing up in chicago or was it tougher to get around well it wasn't tougher to get around but for some reason we never went into the city if you will you know the board of trade and all the big buildings that you referred to in new york i don't know why we didn't uh, just probably because everybody was busy you know my mother had was raising three kids and a fourth one and my dad was working to make you know ends meet uh, but I guess this might answer your question. Uh, I had hay fever and very badly. And all my immigrant um, aunts and uncles, not all of them, some of them had farms in Battle Creek, Michigan area. And 
I, that was a killer for me, the hay and the animals and uh, the grain. It just, I could never stop coughing and sneezing. So I used to take shots at Cook County Hospital, which was would be akin to Boston, what used to be Boston City. Um, it's where people who didn't have much money went. And every Saturday, I got about a dozen or more shots to help me with hay fever. And I would get there by myself. Um, I, I would take three streetcars and to get to the hospital, I'd get my shots, I'd get back on the streetcars and get back and walk up, I don't know, four or five blocks to my home. So in that sense, it was easy. And I guess crime, it was pre-drug days, you know, people didn't, weren't shooting up on a street corner. So I don't think anybody worried that someone was going to kidnap me or um, do me harm. It just was, it was a safer time in America. Can you imagine going, letting a little eight-year-old girl do that in Chicago today? I mean, my kid's not going to go out until she's 35 and she's only <laughs> one now. So no, I can't imagine that. Uh, uh, I hope I pronounce it right. Tetarista? Tetarista? Teta. Tetarista. Teta means aunt. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I figured that, but uh, uh, who was she to you and how did she become your hero? She was an immigrant from Serbia. She, like my grandparents and all the, all the other aunts and uncles, you know, came in steerage. Um, their parents put them on boats or in oil drums or God knows would do anything to get them to the United States of America because life was going to be better here. Whatever it was had to be better than where they were in Serbia. So, and they never, none of these people ever saw their parents again. That just blows my mind. Yeah, um, that's wild. Yeah. Myself and missing yeah. my kids every day. Um, I can't even imagine never seeing your parents again. And you're only 12 or 15, or maybe you're as old as 16. Uh, it was just, just incredible. But she was the feistiest of them all. She had the energy. She was a can-do lady. Um, she and her husband, who died young, as my dad's died young, they worked in the copper mines in Minnesota, and they died of lung disease in their 30s, I think, or maybe early 40s. And so she had a farm in Battle Creek, Michigan, near Athens area, and she raised chickens and cows, and then she married another man, <clears throat> and she was very young when she lost the first one. Uh, and it's a great story in the book about how she was actually betrothed to somebody when she got to America and then hidden the train station. I just love the story. But she was just wonderful. And she, uh, she lived in an old farmhouse. She took in DPs, which were, I guess you wouldn't say that today, but then they were called DPs, displaced persons. There was no welfare then. There was no insurance. There was no help. So immigrants had to get help from anybody, you know, and mostly it would be their family or their church. And so she would take in people, you know, they had no place to go, but Tetsudis to make sure they had a bed and, you know, something to eat. And she would teach me how to get the eggs uh, from the barn. I went to the chicken coop and of course these chickens, they don't want to release their eggs. So, and I'm a little girl, six years old or something, and in my little basket in my hand. <laughs> And they're pecking away at me. So I go and say, Teta, there are no eggs. Sorry. <laughs> oh, well, she blasted me with some Serbian words and took me in, stuck my little fresh hand underneath, hand after hand and pulled out the eggs. What struck me about, she just, she is my hero because she had a can-do attitude. She has the kindest heart. She would help anybody. Nothing would stop her. 
Um, and so I realized that she, and then I guess my dad's example of going from running a bowling alley to becoming the president of Gillette North America with no education or contacts, only in America. I think those two people were such an example of, it, there's no hurdle too high. There's no barrier that you can't get around under or over. But you just gotta work hard enough at it. And nobody owes you anything. Nobody owes you anything, I was taught. You gotta work for it. And if you fail, try again. And if you don't, why not? Are you lazy? Or maybe that you're barking up the wrong tree. Try another one. So that attitude in America worked for millions of people. Uh, and today it's very different because you have a welfare state, you have all kinds of help. Um, I mean, today it's, I mean, America is so different today. Uh, I think it's very important for everybody though, and you would appreciate this considering what you do, to know history. It's important to know what went on before. I hope that people who read my book, for example, on any number of issues, let's take the women's thing we were just talking about. When they read that, I think it makes you stronger to deal with today. Uh, it makes you appreciative that you got to today. Uh, anniversaries are important, you know. Uh, I'm about to host the Boston Pops on Nantucket next a couple of weeks. And I did the first one 25 years ago. And that's a point I'd like to make to the, I don't know, four or 5,000 people that will probably be there on Jetty's Beach, is that anniversaries give you a, a, an opportunity to look back and say, how did this get started? How did <laughs> we get to here? And then to look at today and say, oh, well, so where are we today? And what does that mean for the next year or 25? So, you know, there are any number of issues that I pointed out in the book from, from immigrant status to religion, to race, to abortion. I can't believe that's still an issue it's for, you know, the last 50 years um, to the, the place of women and men in our society. And who owes you what and what do you owe whom? Um, so I hope that that triggers thoughts um, for people. It's not just a, a little a book about here's my, how my, my life was, who cares? It, it's, for me, writing that book, which was just total happenstance because of COVID, because um, I didn't know what else to do with myself. Uh, it, I hope it's a, a, a bunch of stories that you can relate to and that somehow helps you. I don't know. I don't know. I hope it does. Uh, I love hearing stories of how people got their first jobs in TV, talking about looking up, uh, barking up the wrong tree and finding another tree that might uh, let you up to the top. Um, your story revolves around a guy named Jim Thistle. I hope I say it right, Jim Thistle. Right. And um, he is sort of your grand legend in in Boston TV news, at least the way uh, uh, that's how I took it in the story. Um, explain how you barked up eventually the right tree. And as usual, it's just sort of a random, you know, opportunity that someone gets that turns into something bigger. Uh, Jim Thistle was a legend who basically gave you a call one day. Well, yes, it's an interesting story. And I go into it in detail in the book. So just to summarizing it, once I decided I, I wanted to get into check out TV journalism, I applied and wrote, I, I did my homework. You know, I wrote a, what I thought was a pretty good package of information, three pieces. One, a fictional piece to show that I could write fiction, uh, which is about writing style more than anything. One, I did a, a pro and con piece on capital punishment. 
And the other one was uh, my own, and an editorial actually on America's foreign policy as I witnessed it in my two years in Bangkok. So my thought was if these leaders of the Boston TV stations were to read this, and I was only what, 23 years old or something, maybe they would see the promise of a good journalist someday. Um, and, but I couldn't get an interview with anyone. So Jim Thistle, the man you mentioned, was the news director of Channel 56. And he actually read my portfolio and invited me in for an interview. And it, he said, I would hire you tomorrow as a cub reporter. Back in the days we had such things. And, but I can't, because I don't have the money for that. I'll have to wait a year. So I'll skip through all the details. And a year later, he did call um, and said, I don't have that job I talked about, the cub reporter. However, I have something in community service. And I said, I'll take it. I didn't even know what community service meant. <laughs> he didn't mention how much he'd pay me. I didn't really care. I mean, I could, I was making ends meet with my then husband, Bill Jacobson, by waitressing and teaching substitute school. I could, I wasn't going to start, but I figured, how do you know if you really want to do that until you get in? What is TV news? I have no idea. What is TV? How do you get pictures and sound <laughs> in a box? Uh, what do you mean you send? I still can't answer that question. The air? I, I have no idea. Yeah, yeah right. Um, so at any rate. So I eventually, he did call a year later, I did get the job. And what it turned out to be was a gift. You know, you have to be a little lucky in life, but I think there's a difference between opportunity and luck. And I also think that if you take advantage of opportunities and if you do try to jump some of those hurdles, that you have a better shot at getting some good luck and not being put down by bad luck. Uh, like the three people who stations that wouldn't even talk to me. So what I ended up doing back in those days, this is another theme of the book that I think most readers would find interesting. We TV news, TV in general, and and also let me turn that around. Broadcast, both TV and radio, was governed by this federal government, the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, and there were rules you had to follow, including reapplying for your license every three years, ascertaining the needs of the community. So that was my job to ascertain the needs of the community. So here's this 23, 24 year old, know nothing girl, whipping through the city of Boston, interviewing anyone who would interview me. I found out I love to interview people. <laughs> I am fascinated with the why of everything. I drive people crazy. Uh, I know I do. My, but my why? Point. I love that. I do like that question. Why? Why, why do you do this? Why do you think why? that? And I don't have to agree with you. I just have to know why you think what you think. That's what a good reporter I eventually learned does. Uh, it doesn't matter what I think, but did I do my job to explain to people who are gonna listen to you, for example, example Evan, um, why you ask that question? Why you have that opinion? Why do you have this show? What, what do you get out of it? What do the people get out of it? I'm fascinated with that stuff. So that was my first job. And then do you to round it out, Jim Thistle ended up being the news director years later at WCBB, where I eventually did finally get a job as a reporter. Do you remember your first big story when you're out in the field? I mean, I I don't know that I remember my actual first big story, but I remember the feeling. I mean, now I'm going back to 2000 and 
probably the end of 2005, early 2006. And I have, I, I can still feel it like in my bones where I was like, oh my God, okay, I have to figure out this. I have to figure out this. Who else can I talk to? How do all these reporters know what to do? What do I do? What yeah. what time is it now? Do you remember that feeling for you? Oh, sure, sure. What was I the story? Re- I, don't, I don't remember a particular story. Yeah, uh, me, same with me. It, yeah. it could have been interviewing Mayor Kevin White, who right, was intimidating. Who He's, he's, he talked so fast and he, he was important and I was nobody. And, or it could be, um, or, or it could be interviewing, a, uh, say, a baseball star. Uh, Ted Williams, for example. Oh, my God. He was my hero. He was, it, my heart was in my throat. Um, or, um, it, it, but you're right. And I don't think that ever leaves you, that fear, that, what? what am I doing? Am I asking the right questions? Yeah. Can I do my homework? Oh, maybe just, your blood it, pressure goes down though after 20 years, hopefully. I, well, I, yes, because you become more knowledgeable, but you should yeah. never become complacent. Yeah. I'm and, with you every, and if you don't think that every interview, that you learn something in every interview, I think you're in the wrong job. Yeah. Here's a story for me. I I talk about baseball stars. One of my first interviews with somebody even remotely important was with a mid-level division one basketball coach. And he basically looked at the guy I was with and said, he's not going to ask me any stupid questions, is he? And I was like, no, no, no. And then I asked whatever question I asked and he went, well, that's a stupid question. That's a stupid, probably well, 2002 yeah. or three. I bet it wasn't a stupid question. He just didn't know how to answer it. Uh, there you go. Um, uh, what was it like to be in TV when it was the game, when when uh, the websites didn't exist and Twitter didn't exist and people really did have to wait until five o'clock and six o'clock um, along with evening newspapers and things like that. But what was it like to be in TV when there was a certain level of respect and dependency on the product an enormous amount of responsibility um you had you nailed it you know people had to wait till six o'clock to get their news their local news and then 6 30 to get their national news well if you're the only source or one of the few obviously there are newspapers um there was no social media of any kind and there was the technology of today simply did not exist there were no computers Uh, There certainly was no Google search. There was nothing. So your source of information was the local newspaper. And if maybe a national one, the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, such a radio, radio news was important. I forgot about radio. Yeah. Everybody listened to radio. And and that's six o'clock news. Um, The 11 o'clock news certainly attracted people, but fewer because it was late. People had to get up and go to work at six o'clock in the morning. Excuse me. So, but so that then, so it was a lot of things. One is the responsibility to get it right. And also to make sure if you are a hundred things going on in a day and you've got a 20 minutes out of 30 newscast to give people information, you've got to, you've got to make the right decisions about what to tell and cover and what not to cover. But uh, on the really plus side, and this is probably hard for people to accept today, there was because we were, because people got together usually while eating dinner and watched our news at six o'clock, it was a familial sense. You felt they were your family and they, and vice versa, and you were their family. And it, it was, you cared about them. It really mattered that the South End of Boston 
a particular thing happened there. Maybe it was a fire. Maybe it was they got screwed on some tax issue, um, whatever. It mattered. And then you went into that neighborhood the next day and you talked to real people and you cared. It, it, it wasn't a story. It was life. You're reporting life. News is not a commodity you can hold in your hand. And I, I think that as years went by and, you know, big conglomerates bought up everything from ABC to a local TV station, that sense of responsibility and caring somehow moved into the bottom line on a spreadsheet. And it, it's, it's a different game, if you will, to sell and to promote and to own. Um, a, a, a Gillette Safety Razor versus a television station that is telling you stories about you and the people that affect your life. I miss that. Um, quick story, uh, which is just so precious to me. A young man recently came up to me and he looked like he was, I don't know, 21 years old. And <clears throat> I passed that mark decades ago. And so he came, he said, Natalie Jacobson, what a pleasure to meet you. And I, you know, we exchanged pleasantries, but I couldn't help but ask him. I said, wait a minute. I said, you're so young. How do you know me? I've been gone since 2007 from the nightly newscast. Oh, he said, Natalie, he said, every night, Monday through Friday, six o'clock, my family and I sat down to dinner and we watched your newscast, which I then co-anchored initially with my then partner and co-husband, Chet Curtis. And he said, we watched you and Chet every night. So you were our family. And then he looked at me and he said, you don't ever forget your family. I burst into tears. I mean, to imagine that your job, reporting the news every night, and he and his family thought of us as family, could you have a better compliment to your worth in life? Um, what a nice thing to say, too. I'm glad he said it. Very nice of him. Um, and I'm sure millions of people in Boston felt that way about you uh, and Chet. Um, this is a bit of an inside baseball question. And maybe only TV news people will like to hear the answer, but I've got to ask it. Um, I've talked with tons of people who were in TV before I was born. Many of them still work with me at the TV station I work at. And I've heard stories about what the business used to be like. Uh, midday deadlines to develop film, the heavy cameras, the countless producers that used to fill the newsroom. Certainly staff staffing levels have changed over the years. Um and there's always an insinuation when you talk to folks who've been in the business since the 70s or 80s that it was done better back then. Um, do you have fond memories of TV news production from your earlier days? Um, or are the people who describe it as being heaven on earth um, exaggerating in a, a bit in, well, are they, are they pinning too much nostalgia? on those days? Well, from, from a technical point of view, it certainly was more difficult. Those cameras were 45 pounds. And uh, we had one camera that would shoot you know, pictures and sound and what we had called a slow mode, which was a little camera you could hold in your hand that only shot pictures. And it was film days. So you, had, you would come back and you would literally slice film, hang it up on, a, on hooks and actually put the pieces together to, to create a story. 
so there, from that standpoint, things are easier today. Um, from a more editorial standpoint, <clears throat> there were few of us, fewer than exist today in most newsrooms. Uh, and so we all did everything kind of together. I don't mean that I shot the pictures, although it happened once in a while, but um, it, it means that you worked as a team is what I'm trying to say. So you had a reporter uh, and a photographer. That was basically the team every day. Then as time went on and we did started to move outside of little greater Boston and started covering presidential campaigns and, uh, and, um, and moving into greater New England and inter interviewing people outside and so forth. And as we expanded our definition of what we could cover that was of importance, we had more producers, but not like what you found in the seventies and eighties. And not, excuse me, not what you found in the 80s, what we've gotten is that, I mean, for example, I can remember my first convention, Democratic convention or Republican, I forget which it was. And I said, well, how, how am I going to anchor the news from wherever we were? Um, here, I said to Linda Pollack, who was the producer with me, she said, well, they're going to fax you the, the uh, script from the stories that we're not covering. Of course, the bulk of the news of what we were covering. And I said, they're going to do what? She said, fax it. I said, What's a fact? What does that mean? She said, well, they're going to, I said, I don't get it. Can you, so I look at this machine and pages are coming out, which was sent from Needham to wherever we were. And I said, how does that happen? That's how, so kind of that, that tells your younger viewers in a nutshell. Where, wait, where? Oh, our viewers won't even, my, I mean, my people won't know what a fax is. I mean. I know yeah. sometimes today when you try to make a doctor's appointment, they say, can you fax me that script? And I'll go, <laughs> no, I don't have a fax machine. <laughs> I can take a picture of it and text it to you. Yeah, yeah um, I, can that. I want to hear about WCVB. Uh, I, um, I, this is not sour grapes. I applied there several times on my job hunt. Uh, yeah. Never quite okay. got in the door. Okay. Uh, great station. I know some people there now. Uh, always very, very well respected. But I loved hearing the founding uh, story of WCBB. Yeah, I mean, just people who thought we should build a great TV station. Yeah, that's again, then something that's never going to happen again. Um, right. right. It, Let's build a TV station. You know, that's why I, I look back at my life and, and there's so many things that I just described to you in terms of technology, about coming together as a family, about, uh, you know, the, the ethnic upbringing of most people I knew. Um, so the, there were all of those things, but as relates to your question, there was a group, and this again, this is is, is part of an amazing life. Um, a group of Boston businessmen who were basically in their fifties and sixties who had been very successful in their various fields. For example, doc, example, Dr. John Knowles was head of Mass General Hospital. Um, he was one of the men. Um, uh, uh, Another man with both Baranek and Newman, Leo Baranek was the president of this little group. And he wrote the Bible on audio in the world, the great opera houses and so forth, you know, depended on his scientific teaching, et cetera. So the, there were about 16 of them and they were bored. They were, I mean, they could argue with me that they weren't bored, but it's a better, better way to say it is they were ready for a new challenge. So at the time, the Herald Traveler Corporation this is too long a story, so people are going to have to read the book. So how can I shorten this up? Um, they ended up getting, after a protracted fight, seven years or so with the government, they won the license to operate what's called Channel 5. And then 
and went from WHDH to WCBB. So, but this part is germane and I can speak to this um, perhaps more briefly. This group of people, Boston Broadcasters Incorporated, as they called themselves, made promises to the government and to the nation, and certainly to Greater Boston, that they would produce more local, innovative, original programming that met the needs of a six-state region than anyone had ever attempted to do in the history of television, which is probably you know, a promise you could make because the history of television wasn't very old, <laughs> but no one else had done it. And by golly, not only did they meet what they promised, they exceeded it. We were doing a, right off the bat some 60 hours of original programming a week. That's impossible. Nobody even does that today. So what did that mean for somebody like me? So now I'm better in my late 20s at this point and a bunch of people like me. We were all late 20s, early 30s, perhaps when this station went on the air. It meant that you could take risks. You could, you could create any show you wanted. You could decide what's, a, what's the way we should really be covering the Seabrook nuclear power plant and the questions about it. How should we really be covering the abortion question um, that's before the Supreme Court? How should we really be covering X, Y, and Z? And your, your superiors were welcome to any idea you had. Of course, you had to back it up with some common sense and a bill to tell me how we can get this done. Uh, and that was all because of a guy named Bob Bennett. These, group, this, these people had the good sense to hire a guy named Robert M. Bennett, who was working in New York at that point after a very successful stint in Washington, D.C. for Metro Media. And his mantra was, I want to hear every idea. There is no risk not worth taking if it makes sense and if it's for the people, if it's for the people. If this is going to enhance, not be just a great TV show, but people are going to get something out of this. And that applied to entertainment as well as news. So for me, uh, have, I cannot imagine working for a greater TV station than CVB as it was back in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. You um, told a number of stories in the book about individual stories, but uh, and I want to get to a couple of them. But before we do, I want to ask, how did you have all these recollections? I know it was during COVID, so, you know, uh, the lockdown. So we all had time to sit there and, you know, think about all sorts of things. Uh, were you saving notes um, on paper or on a computer somewhere? Um, or did you have to plumb the depths of your memories and have uh, little seances to conjure all these memories back up? You know, it's shocking to me. So March, first weekend of March, 2020, I'm all by myself in this apartment. Everything closes. And I'm saying, my God, what am I going to do with myself? So I thought, well, I don't know. And I thought, and I thought, you know, people have urged me to write a book. How do you write a book? I don't know how to write a book, but maybe I should try. So I went to a local store and you had to stand outside in the line. They didn't let anybody inside and bought a printer. And I had a computer, laptop, and I sat down for the next, I don't know, two months, eight weeks. And every day for five hours, I just took my computer and I wrote whatever popped into my head. And I didn't try to write a book. I wrote stories. And the stories, Evan, just poured out of my mind. This is a girl who can't remember who I met this morning, their name. I mean, I remember them, but that's her name. 
and the details. I could picture the people talking to me. I could picture the scenes, the World Airways crowd. I could see it, although I didn't include that in the book. Um, I, I could see it. I could hear people. I could. I, I. I don't know. My guardian angels just came into my feeble brain, and out popped a whole bunch of stories. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote. That's how it happened. You know, so I, I fact checked later. <laughs> You know, you know, it's so funny. I um, have found that if someone says, hey, do you remember doing that story? Um, I may not have thought about it since the day we did that story. But even after 16 or 17 years, I can remind I, I can remember once someone gives me the story slug or the story headline of what the story was. I can remember what that day was like driving around who I was with what show I was in, what happened along the way. It's such a strange phenomenon, maybe because the stories are so individual and unique. Well, it's, you know, who knows? It's an interesting part of the human memory, isn't it? And obviously those, that person or that event or that fact that you covered, uh, that story, it's for whatever reason, which you might not even be able to define today, was important enough in your brain to lock it in, to keep it there. So that you could recall it. Uh, I'm embarrassed at how <laughs> how little time we have left. So I want to hear a couple of individual stories. Uh, running right into Bill Clinton in the White House. Bang, there he was, the president of the United States. What were you doing right outside the Oval Office? And then why were you invited back? Which is even the more, uh, the, the even more uh, impressive part of this story. We were there to cover, we, WCBB, the news team, was there to cover um, our marathon runners, Joan Benoit Samuelson and, and uh, Billy Rogers. And it, it was a great opportunity. I don't even know who orchestrated that. So, so I'm there to, and he's going to run with the marathoners. So we're waiting for them to do their five-mile run or whatever they did. And back then, security was different than today. You know, people weren't shooting people. And I mean, it was just a different world. So we're in the Oval Office in the waiting room. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I, I, I have not. It is, a, it is a bucket list. It is a dream of mine to be yeah, in well, there one day. It was mine too, and I was only there once. So <laughs> <laughs> Bucket narrow, list. It's only going to happen once? That's it. So there's this narrow corridor that takes you to the Oval Office from this little waiting room. So one of the people on our staff, one of our producers, had a friend who was on the White House security detail. So he let us in. Um, and I don't know if you're even supposed to tell people this, but anyway, <laughs> uh, so we're having a blast. We're running back and forth. And so I go through this little corridor and someone's laughing about something and I bang my head right into some, a person. So I said, oh, excuse me. And I looked up and it's Bill Clinton. I wanted to die. Uh, it was so embarrassing. I'm acting like a three-year-old, my God. And he was very kind. And I, I tell the story in the book so people can read about it. It's pretty darn funny. Um, and then, you know, he did invite me back because I, he complimented me on my interview and I said, oh, Mr. President, I said, thanks. But, you know, I would really like to talk to you about something more important than marathon running. And so I told, I suggested something. And again, it's too long a story. You don't have enough time. Uh, but he invited me to come back to the White House and, and with the people that might explain what was going on in Kosovo at the time. It was just before he decided to join NATO in the bombing of but he saw. heard you were Ser- uh, Serbian descent and that interested yes. him. Well, I told him, I said, yeah. you know, um, and I told him I was of Serbian descent. I said, Americans Serbs think you're only getting one side of the story. He said, bring me a, 
group of intelligent people who could educate me. I said, I'll do it. Um, but I think he was just being nice because it didn't happen. Uh, Boston's had some lows and some highs over the years. Um, give, uh, I'll give you a low to talk about what it was like to cover the church sex abuse scandal. Um, as the broad nature of it started to come into into view and we learned about what happened to all these kids how did you as a reporter keep the um keep your ability to not be emotional and still have distance between you and the story you were covering so you could do the proper journalistic job well, you could say that, I mean, you have to do that no matter what story you're covering. How about the boys, you know, not coming back from Afghanistan? Uh, how do you separate these things? Uh, um, I'm, I don't know. Um, in terms of the sex abuse crisis, first, it was a bloody shock to everyone. And that it wasn't one priest and it wasn't two priests, and it wasn't three kids. It was hundreds and thousands. And as the story grew, it was more and more shocking. And so to put it in a little bit of context, Boston at the time was very Catholic, um, primarily Irish and Italian. So the church was huge. Uh, the church in any neighborhood, Boston's a city of neighborhoods, a church in South Boston or in East Boston was the center of the town or that part of the town. So. It was a big story. It was um, it was a non-ending story. It was a con is a continuing story, and then to have a very popular archbishop become a cardinal and then find out he was at the heart of uh, of moving priests around and knew what was going on. It just was mind-boggling. Uh, the Boston Globe, give them credit, they did one heck of a job of exposing it all. I mean. Read their, read their book, read, see their movie, it's excellent. And, and then I became um, involved intimately or not intimately, personally, because a family that had suffered the abuse of a priest in a different way, but all part of it, said they would only talk to me in the station you know, that I worked for. They knew a story when they saw it. And you know, they gave me a whole half hour on the Chronicle slot um, to, to interview this family and let them tell their story. So. But you see, Evan, it was another example of stories. Um, this one, of course, unhappy. There were many that were happy. Um, where we shared it and we were learning it, the details of it with our viewers. We were in the same pot. We were in the same room. We were on the same wavelength. We weren't some entertainers or hotshot, you know, celebrity broadcasters telling you something. No. These were stories that affected you and me and us. I did, this is, you know, I'm not a one-man band here. I worked with amazing reporters and photographers and producers and writers and management that allowed all this to happen. It was a different time. I think if I had to say one word to help you with, as you see, we're running out of pure time, I would have to say maybe caring, C-A-R-I-N-G. And what allowed the caring about what we did was the people to whom, about whom, for whom we were talking, reporting. Um, it was intimate. Our relationship felt intimate. And I think that's the whole difference. 
you left in 2007, which means that you were there for maybe the greatest moment in Boston history when the 2004 Red Sox were able to slay the dragon. Uh, Certainly different than covering the kind of uh, calamity that the the sex abuse scandal was. Uh, When you um, think back to covering that World Series, um, I guess at some level you had to acknowledge the fact that nobody was going to have emotional distance from that story, that you all are going to have smiles when you were on the air, right? You have one now. Absolutely. (laughs) That was maybe the most fun I ever had on television. I couldn't wait to get to my sports guy, Mike Lynch, every night and have, you know, 30 seconds to share that third inning pitch. Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and you know, the Boston's a little town, you know, you'd see the ball players. I was walking to the park and then the three or four of the team was sitting there at an outdoor cafe and it's, you know, relaxed. I'm going, Oh my God, who's relaxed. It was the greatest baseball. I'm a baseball nut. I, no, I shouldn't say that. I'm a Red Sox nut. <laughs> and in Boston, if you're if you're not part of Red Sox Nation, you're not really a Bostonian, you know. <laughs> Sorry about the '86. Uh, I'm a Mets fan. You see, uh, you, we're looking at each other here, even though the show is audio only. You can see I have my Mets flags up on yeah, the, uh, the wall behind. That's okay. That's okay. You should be whatever you want to be. I think there you go. I think being a fan of a, your hometown team it, team is one of the joys of life. I, I agree with that completely. Boston um, had four. We had basketball, basketball, hockey, football, and baseball. I am well aware uh, of of the the salad days that Boston found themselves in at the uh, in the early two thousands, um, and then on into the 20, 2010s. Uh, your mantra is this: while you might not agree with someone's views, understanding why that person has those views helps us coexist. Where are we? Where is our society on your in your judgment based on the understand uh, on the understanding scale right now? Where are we that? Where are we at that? 180 degrees is different. Um, it's it's shocking. It's frightening. Members of Congress don't talk to each other. Um, they, they 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 don't want to hear from you. you know, you've got to my way is the right way. Um, you couldn't possibly have an idea that would be better than my idea. Um, party is everything. America is second. Um, I think we're in a lot of trouble in this country. And I think the media bears a lot of responsibility. If, if, if we were, we the media in general, and that means everything today that we didn't have then, such as social media, such as cable, such as internet, um, if, if the media were doing its job, of going after the, why do you think that? Don't tell me it's because you're a Democrat and you always vote Democrat. Don't tell me it's because you're a Republican and you always vote Republican. Don't tell me it's because you hate Trump or you love Trump. Those are, those are not answers. Why are you voting for this spending bill? Why are you not voting for it? Why are you doing what you're doing? And if the media were doing its job, instead of promoting their own opinions, especially on cable, who cares what you think? Honest, I stopped watching cable for a while. I couldn't stand it anymore, both Fox and CNN. Um, because, and there are notable exceptions. But I, I'd really, you know, Evan, if you were to sit there and tell me what I should think about how anything is working right now, um, let's take how we're handling, uh, well, we don't have time for examples, anything. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to say, well, who's Evan? Why do I care what you think? Why would you care what I think? And you shouldn't. 
What you should care about is, am I a good reporter? Am I a good journalist? Did I ask the right questions? Did I bring you Mr. So-and-so's opinion and Ms. So-and-so's opinion and ask them so that you could see why they believe what they believe? And maybe, and maybe there's some compromise. In our Congress today, there is no compromise. There's, it's, not, it's not part of the mission. It's sad. It's really sad. These midterm elections, Evan, uh, we, we could spend a whole another show talking about it, but I think the general public, the media, and our elected representatives need to get a grip. In preparation for this interview, I did a little research on you. I looked up some YouTube videos, and I saw a video you just did with your old station, WCVB, where the anchor pointed out very astutely at the beginning of the interview that when you walked in to the studio, you immediately address the camera. That was your old, uh, your old habit and old habits either die hard or don't die at all. Um, I still get a tingly feeling when I walk into a newsroom because that's just my domain and it has been for almost 20 years. What feeling do you get when you walk into a newsroom and how would you describe what it's like to be surrounded all that ingenuity and all that information? The feeling is one of teamwork. Um, that we're all in the same boat do, for a reason to give people information they need or entertainment they would love. In my case, it's the information end of it. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. That television camera represents to me a person. And I was assigned to anchor when I was even, even a good reporter yet um, because all the big guys were out of town. And Thanksgiving, I thought I would die. I was so scared. And I tell the story in the book, and I, I won't ruin those who want to read the book, but a cameraman saved my life. And after what happened on that Thanksgiving day, I wasn't scared anymore because I wasn't talking to a million people. I was talking to one person at a time. And that camera represents one person listening, one person at a time. So there's an intimacy that I guess I suddenly reacted to after being out of, I hadn't been back at the station since 2007. So it was emotional. You had not been back in, in 13 years, 14 years. No, it was too wow. emotional. I couldn't do it. Really? So when I went back there and was greeted so warmly by some of the people who are still there and some of the new people, um, I cried. It was emotional. It meant a lot to me. Natalie Jacobson, the author of Every Life, a Story. Natalie Jacobson reporting. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Evan. I wish you well. Thanks so much. Check out the book. Check out her Twitter feed, which is at Nat Jacobson 5, number 5. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We'll donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History, and today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks.